This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by the Succeed and Scale newsletter, a weekly newsletter for business owners that delivers quick tips and insights to help grow your business. Join for free at leadtowin succeed. Hi, I'm Michael Hyatt. And I'm Megan Hyatt Miller. And this is Lead to Win, our weekly podcast to help you win at work and succeed at life. And today we're talking about a critical topic, one that's become very important to us and one that got more attention in 2020 than it has probably the last 50 years. And we're talking about the contribution that leaders can make to diversity in their businesses and in their communities. And more specifically, how do we create a thriving multiracial community inside our companies? And to guide us in this conversation, we have trusted pastor, thought leader, speaker, and community activist, Dr. Chris Williamson. Dr. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, Michael, good to be here. Hey, Megan, good to see you. Hey, Pastor Chris, so glad that you're here. You know, um, we wanted you to be on today because you have really, I think, uh, profound and deep experience in creating multiracial community as the pastor of Strong Tower Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And, you know, here at Michael Hyden Company, we've been having a conversation internally and then a little bit externally um, about how do we create more just and equitable workplaces as leaders? You know, this podcast is all about leadership. Our listeners mostly are leaders of teams, leaders of companies um, in some form or, or fashion. And, you know, we're all trying to figure this out. We recently did an episode, we talked about this, and a lot of the focus of that episode was on recruiting. You can go back and listen to that in our archive. Um, and how do you kind of uh, have more diversity in your organization? But as I was saying to you before we started recording, it's kind of only half the battle because once you have people of color in your organization, if you happen to find yourself in a situation now where uh, you're not as diverse as you would like to be, then you have to really create a community where people of different backgrounds, different races, different genders, et cetera, feel like they belong and want to stay long-term. And it can actually be something that is beneficial and not divisive. So we wanted to bring you on today to really talk about that. And I'd love for you to start just by sharing your story of how you ended up becoming the pastor of a multiracial congregation at Strong Tower Bible Church. Wow. Uh, I have to go back many, many years, <laughs> almost 30 years, um, when I came to Nashville, um, having graduated from seminary and being a newlywed to my wife, Darina, we moved to Nashville for music. <laughs> and like so many, when we got here, we lost our record contract. Oh, and gosh. so I had to do some other things to support my new bride. And uh, one of the things I did was um, I was hired by a Presbyterian church in Franklin, Tennessee. Now, I grew up Baptist, so I didn't know much about Presbyterians. I heard jokes saying that they were the chosen frozen, but <laughs> but uh, I, I went on and cast my lot in with them. And they were a great group of people to work with of the Reformed faith of the Presbyterian Church in America. And uh, it was a majority white church. And I was used to being in that kind of environment because at school, I was one of the few African-Americans in my classrooms. Uh, so I was used to being uh a minority in the minority, if you will. Mm. And so this church was about 3,000 members, and they had a heart for reaching the low-income communities, which happened to surround the church within about a two-mile radius. And so I was brought on staff to help boost their efforts in their outreach, which they had already been doing. But they realized that 
They needed a black man if they were going to effectively reach that black and brown community. And so uh, I worked with them for about two and a half years. And then I developed a burden to plant a church, which was something I said I would never do. But uh, I saw the need for a church in the community. And, uh, and as I was serving in the low income black community, I, I would also preach um, at the majority white church. And so there would be people who would ask from both communities, if you ever start a church, we're interested. And again, that was not on my radar, but obviously it was on God's. And so, um, of course, I took to the scriptures and I saw diversity um, and unity in scripture. It was just jumping off the pages. And so launched out and did that. And that was in the days when Promise Keepers was also starting. And there was an emphasis on racial reconciliation. But as we look back on it, to emphasize reconciliation without emphasizing justice really didn't allow us to make strides beyond just shaking friends and hands and singing Kumbaya. So, <laughs> um, so we started the church with an intentional mission to be diverse. It was written in our mission statement, um, our vision statement, um, because again, we, we saw it in the Bible. We see it as a kingdom issue. And so uh, because we kept talking about it, putting the vision before the people, we were able to succeed. And in our early years, our church was probably 70% Caucasian. Mm. And then as we went on and had different moves around the city and the area, um, it went to like 50%, 50-50. And now that we're in Nashville, and in light of the times that we're in, Mm -hmm. our church is probably 80% African-American now. So we've gone through a lot of changes over the years. But one of the things that stood fast for us was the commitment to make sure that there was representation in leadership and on the platform. People need to see people who look like them making decisions that count. Mm -hmm. And so um, my elders, my pastors, my staff, over the years, we've done our best to be intentional without being manipulative in the process. We Mm, always want the best person that we can find, but we also keep a, a mindset that the best person may be a native, may be Latino, may be African American, may be Caucasian. But over time, when we see that maybe it's beginning to tilt to one demographical people group, all the more we're intentional to try to say, we need to include a woman. We mm-hmm. need to include a white person. We need to include... So so that's how we do it because it's one of our core values. Right. I have a follow-up question to that. So it's one thing to talk about a multiracial community at a theoretical level. But as you started this community, what were some of the challenges that you faced almost immediately? Like you you get these people from dis- disparate backgrounds together. What were some of the challenges that you had to overcome in those early days? In the early days, you had, of course, economic challenges. Um, hmm. I had people who were millionaires sitting next to people on government assistance. The good thing is people didn't know really who was what because there wasn't a dress code or anything like that. It, it really was come as you are. And some people would wear their fine clothes and other people wear their finest, you know, casual clothes. But early on, the cultural part had to do with uh, the music, the mm-hmm. music, um, because people, even if they're unchurched, they have an understanding of what church music should be. Um, and if you're coming from a world where you're into R&B or soul music, then you're going to be into gospel music. If you're coming from a world of contemporary music, you're looking for contemporary Christian music. So we would have Sundays. We, we were blessed to have a very um, balanced and gifted uh, musical team, always have by the grace of God. So we could play 
Stephen Curtis Chapman songs. We could play Matt Redman songs, but we could also play Fred Hammond, John P. Key, uh, Richard Smallwood. So some Sundays you would be stretched mm-hmm. because you're not familiar with that. But that's where you say, you know what? This may not be my style, but my neighbor sure seems to be happy right now. So I'll be happy <laughs> for him or for her. And then the next week, it'll be flipped the other way and we'll do something and we'll even do jazz and rap. Because sometimes church should be about stretching you. You know, uh, as I like to say, I like to afflict the com- comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And so um, we, we need to realize, you know, as Paul said, I got to look out for the interests of others and not just my own. So church mm-hmm. is a good place if it's multicultural to be able to do that. And, and even length of service. Uh, many of my white members came in, man, 45 minutes to an hour. Hey, man, that's my sermon time, man, you know. (laughs) So we had to split the difference, you know. Many of us come from uh, backgrounds where we'd be in church all day on Sunday, which comes from our slave backgrounds where Sunday was our day to worship God. And so we weren't trying to see that end because of what we had to go back to. So that was just inherently within our genes to be in church. And Mm. we would finish when the Holy Ghost was finished. But uh, but my white brothers and sisters were a lot more monochronic with the time, and we were more polychronic. <laughs> and so when you pull those cultures together, you have to have balance. You have to have grace and understanding. You know, when you were talking about at the beginning, kind of how you think about building your leadership team and the representation, um, you know, at the front of the church and so forth. It got me thinking about the parallel between that and what leaders are facing inside their organizations. You know, there's so much conversation about the need for diversity right now, particularly at leadership levels. You know, it's not enough um, just to have it at the you know entry level of your organization. You've really got to have it all the way up to the top. And I think before we even talk about the cultural stuff and how to make that work, I think it's important to hear your perspective on why that matters, why that's valuable, because I know you believe so much in diversity, but also unity. And those are things in a way that seem like they're kind of opposed to each other. You know, people kind of feel like sometimes it has to be one or the other, but um, I'm familiar with your your books and, uh, you know, hearing you speak and so forth. So I'd love for you to just talk about why, why diversity? Why is this something as leaders we should be thinking about? Why does it matter? Well, the world we live in is diverse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, even though our neighborhoods might not be diverse and places where we go to church may not be diverse. But the world we live in is diverse, and it's becoming more and more diverse. Studies have said by year 2045, white people will be in the minority in America. So if we're going to be leaders who study trends and understand where the market, where the people are going, then we need to prepare in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we want to be proactive so we don't have to be reactive. So we want to reach a culture um, that will buy into our product or whatever it is we're trying to put forth. And so therefore, we need to understand diversity now, which means we have to come out of our comfort zone and, and, and do some things differently. But I'll also tell people that diversity is fine, but it's not the end goal because you can have diversity, but still not have inclusion. You can have diversity and still not have equity. So we want to make sure that diversity is the thing that that gets us going, but that's not the the primary measuring stick. I'll tell people, and it's hard to hear, but the plantation was diversified. That's right. But the plantation wasn't a place that was inclusive or a place of equity. So we don't want to check boxes. And I think that's been the problem in the past. We've been content to check boxes and to meet quotas 
rather than to truly make this a part of our fabric and inner workings as a cult, a company and, and, and the culture thereby. Could you go ahead and define inclusion and equity so that we can kind of have a better understanding of how those are different from simple diversity? Great question, Brother Mike. I like sports and uh, the sports world can tell us a whole lot about those three terms. When I think about diversity, that means that I have a spot on the team. I'm on the team. So there are different people on the same team. But when I think of inclusion, I think of different people in the starting lineup on the mm. team. So if I'm on the starting lineup, that's, a, that's inclusion. And then equity is different people on the same team having access and opportunity to either coach the team or own the team. So diversity, man, I'm on the team. Inclusion, I'm in the starting lineup on the team. Equity, I'm making major decisions and even owning the team. So I hope mm. that helps. Hugely helpful. It's really helpful. So talk a little bit more about what equity and inclusion look like in an organization, because I think this is so helpful. It's so practical to think through these things as we're trying to make our way as leaders. What does that look like? Well, I think you have to listen to where your people are and recognize that representation matters, that mm -hmm. it's important. Um, it builds good organizational health for people to see people who look like them in places of leadership and not just on the team. And so um, it looks like, for instance, when all these things occur in our culture, it looks like pausing and speaking to them as when George Floyd was murdered in May of 2020. Um, I, I think a, a company, an organization that is mindful to be a difference-making institution can't act like an ostrich and put its head in the ground as if nothing is going on because your employees and your uh, constituents, they're talking about it. So if the, if the people on top don't talk about it, then to me, that doesn't create the best work environment. People are looking to hear from leaders and not just hear leaders talk about um, what we're trying to make financially and build up our margins here and doing this and expanding. They want to hear you talk about what part of their world is, because if you don't do that, it impacts how they work or how they don't work. Yeah. So um, I have a family member who's a vice president. He's an African-American. Um, he's vice president of a pretty noteworthy organization. Mm -hmm. And when George Floyd's situation occurred, the owner of the company, who happens to be white, spoke to the matter. Mm -hmm. But this wasn't the first time he's spoken mm -hmm. to matters. Right. So it wasn't like he was making an announcement or giving a pronouncement. They, they, they understood it was part of their culture and ethos. Mm. And then they had my brother-in-law share as well. And then they encouraged uh, their different departments to take time and talk because some of it mm -hmm. for people in the black community was you needed space and time to lament That's right. because of what was going on, what you saw vicariously you felt. And so yeah. you need a safe place to mourn, to, to vent. And, uh, and when you have that kind of culture in your company where the CEO cares about how you feel and will give you time and even encourage you, as they did in my brother-in-law's company, uh, to take time off yeah. if you need it. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of stuff goes a long way. Yeah, I remember when that happened and you know we were facing that as a company as well. Just what an opportunity that could be so easily missed to say, hey, we see you. You matter. You belong here. And there's room for that experience to happen and for you to have space to lament. 
mm-hmm. you know, that you don't have to compartmentalize that and save that for home, that that, that can be here too. And that we appreciate how traumatic that was, even though we're not experiencing it maybe as white leaders in the same way, we can certainly honor and appreciate it. And I think that's such a growth edge for leaders to lean into because it is vulnerable, especially if it's not, you know, if, if you're white and that's not an experience that you've had before. Um, but it's so important. I mean, it's really where we come together as the human family and acknowledge the humanity in other people, I think. So Pastor Chris, if if I'm leading an organization that's mostly white, but I've been moved and convicted this last year that things have got to change. And maybe I'm somebody like that's probably listening to this podcast. They've they've been doing some reading. They're trying to take some steps in the right direction. But just to kind of give them some shorthand, what are some of the things that they can do today and this year and this quarter to begin to create a more diverse, inclusive, equitable culture? Well, there's an old saying that says, uh, it asks the question, how do you eat an elephant <laughs> one bite at a time? You know, if you if you look at the whole elephant and say, I've got to consume it now, you will be overwhelmed and probably not attempt it. And when we look at the history of <laughs> what's going on in our country in the past and the present, it's overwhelming for everyone. And if we try to solve all the world problems right now and fix it, we will fail if we even attempt. And so many of us will be uh, paralyzed with the analysis of paralysis. We, we, we won't ever jump in because it's just too insurmountable or so we think. And so you, you got to take a bite. You got to take a step. You've got to do something. And one, uh, you know, Dr. King said, the time is always right to do what is right. And so you've got to do something. All of us have the ability to make a change where we are. And so I would encourage um, those kinds of leaders to do something. But but I think before we even jump into what to do, I think the why is probably more important mm-hmm. to deal mm-hmm. with. Why do I want to do something? Because if I jump in trying to do a what or asking someone to tell me how, but my why isn't there, then the what and the how will be short-lived. So mm-hmm. the why, why is this important to me? Because we, we ought to connect on the human level uh, and, and, and what hurts my neighbor ought to hurt and concern me. So that's where the empathy comes. And so it, it's what Jesus would say. It's, it's loving your neighbor and the things that affect your neighbor ought to affect you. Mm-hmm. And so some of it means being intentional to be inclusive as once again, the Lord, and I'm a preacher, so I, I know you got a lot of business leaders, but but hey, ain't no but here. Uh, and Jesus <laughs> talked about you know the parable of the Good Samaritan, the intentionality of the Samaritan to stop and help the man who was battered and bruised and left half dead in the road. Um, he made an investment, which meant he took a risk. And, uh, and, and I believe that when we make investments and we take risks, there are ones that pay great dividends, as opposed to just sitting on the sideline, doing nothing, continuing to get the same thing. And in, in just a matter of time, you will be obsolete because the world will pass you by. So you've got to make some intentional steps to read some things you may have never read, listen to some people you've never listened to before, watch some things you've never watched before. But also this, I think you have to get into the world of other people and not expect them to always get into your world. Yep. In other words, you got to incarnate. you got to go where the fish mm-hmm. are biting. you got to go where people are, and you've got to become one of them. I tell people often uh, that your boardroom 
is simply a reflection of your dining room and your living room. And it's also a reflection of the living rooms and dining rooms that you spend time in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you're not spending time in other living rooms and dining rooms and other kinds of people are not coming in your living room and dining room, how can we expect your boardroom mm-hmm. to look diverse? Really so it, it starts at home. Okay. I have a question about that practically that I hear often uh, from my white friends, particularly white friends who don't have many people of color in their you know immediate circle of friends or family. And they say... I just don't know how to start these conversations. You know, is it okay to talk about race? Is it not okay? What should I say? What should I not say? Are people going to be offended? I think similarly from business leaders, I hear this from other leader friends of mine, you know, like they're they're wondering with their employees who are people of color, can I start conversations about race? Do they want to be included? Do they want to not be included? You know, I think this is where people get that, you know, paralysis of analysis thing and they just get stuck and they don't they don't move. So what would you say? I'm sure this question comes up a lot in your congregation for new people. Oh, yes. Fear is a real thing. Yeah. Fear of failing, fear of rejection, um, even fear of hiring the wrong person, mm-hmm. uh, fear of inviting in a different set of problems, mm-hmm. You know, fear of disrupting the comfort zone, fear of being talked about, fear of what your family is going to think about you. But one of the reasons you are successful is because you've overcome your fears and you've taken risks. Mm -hmm. And you've done what is necessary. You're a leader. And that's what leaders do. Leaders are not always born. Leaders are not always made. But leaders rise when the circumstances call for leadership. And so you've got to step up and step out and take a risk and ask the question. Most people are, are willing to have that conversation. But I'll also say a lot of people are tired of having conversations, especially if they don't lead to any kind of action. But I would just say to my white brothers and sisters, man, give it a try. Take a chance. Ask a question. Treat people the way you would want someone to treat you. We don't hold to the notion of being colorblind. Uh, we're colorful, but that's still a person over there who, who, who hurts the way that you hurt and on and on. So reach them on a soul level, a practical level. We need wisdom on how to deal with the issue of race without making race the issue. Mm-hmm. You know, so so I know that was a mouthful. We'll Let me say. say it again. We we got we need wisdom on how do we deal with the issue of race without making race the issue. But if we look at again our history, we know that race has been the issue since 1619 when the first Africans arrived. So we don't want to act like it's not real and and again have such a um, unrealistic perspective. But neither do we want to make everything about it. Um, so that you, you just got to have that balance yeah. and, uh, and, and when people know that you care, there's grace for you, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm. I, I just saw that, uh, Tom Brady, the amazing Tom Brady did it again yesterday <laughs> and, uh, he's going back to the Super Bowl. Yep. And it makes you wonder now, was it the system or was it the man or was it both, you know, probably mm-hmm. both, but, uh, that's an amazing feat to take, uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who were pretenders last year to make them (laughs) contenders this year. But the head coach, Bruce Arians, he understands something about diversity because in the NFL, we see a lot of minority representation on the field and not so much in the coaching box or in the owner's suite, Mm -hmm. but they're they're trying, you know, the Rooney rule worked. It hasn't worked. At least it's on people's radar. But for Bruce Arians, what I did not know until yesterday was that his entire coaching staff 
is populated with black men and one uh, Asian American woman, uh, Latina woman. Um, so his his entire staff. Wow. And uh, yeah, that's what I said. Offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, special teams. All these are black men and one, uh, for lack of better terms, a brown woman. And so even that is revolutionary. Yeah. And I bet when he was putting that team together, people were saying, wait a minute now, this is not what we're used to around here. We're not, we're okay with one or two of them on the team, but all of them? And mm. I bet you he, he heard some, some heckling from the crowd. But guess what? They're going to the Super Bowl. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, uh, so he put the best people in places of power and it worked. And uh, boy, I love it. I love it because what that too. says now, because the NFL, again, they follow trends. If the, if the run and shoot is working, another team is going to do the run and shoot. If this style is working, if they're hiring offensive coordinators and everybody starts doing that. Well, wouldn't it be great if more teams were intentional to hire African-American coaches? Yep. You know? So, yeah, I, I, I like it's that. Awesome. Being intentional. Yeah, nothing preaches like success. <laughs> Come on, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You know, if you consider, Pastor, what's happened, I mean, what a, what a year 2020 was, but in the last 10 months, and particularly since the tragic murder of George Floyd, as you're standing here today as we're recording this and you look back, what encourages you, you know, what signs of life, if there are any, has encouraged you since that happened to this day? And then I want to ask you the flip side of that question is what's still missing? What has yet to happen that, that those of us who are in leadership can help make happen? Oh, my Michael. Oh, man. See, I want to be invited back. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be careful. But I know you want me to be honest. You've been a good friend I do. to me. Um, there's an old saying that says, move with the movers. And what I have realized is that, unfortunately, the majority, this is my opinion, and I'm painting with a broad brush, so forgive me. The majority of white Americans, especially those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, they don't want this. They want surface unity, surface diversity, but they don't want truly to have inclusion and justice, equity, fairness, even repair at the mm. roots. Um, because to, con to admit to that means that you know, you may have received some of your prosperity unfairly because of how the scales have been unjustly tilted in the history of this country. And no one wants to say that, you know, you're not working hard, but some of us are saying there are just some things you don't have to face yep. as right. you work hard that others of us have to face. And it's a real field of landmines that we must go through. So the majority, even if we go back to the time of slavery, the Civil War, the days of segregation. It's only a remnant of people who want it, who want America to really live up to its ideals. Just a remnant, just a small group of whites who want it. And so I've encouraged myself by looking at that group, those mm. people in my church, those people in my life, um, the young man that my daughter is dating and will hopefully marry. I look at them to get my encouragement because if I look mm. at the masses, and I look at what I saw in the Capitol on January 6th and people carrying Jesus banners and Confederate flags, mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll get discouraged. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I move with the movers. I, I run with the remnant. 
Um, I, 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 I try to walk with people who do more than talk. Um, I, I, I have white allies in my life who encourage me when I get discouraged. And that, my friend, that is surreal that they come alongside of me and say, Pastor, or say, Chris, keep your head up. Keep going, man. People are listening. They may not admit it, but they're listening. And uh, so rather than looking for the whole group or a bunch of people, I just look for a few. The Nicodemus who came and talked to Christ at night, um, who then made a public stand later. It's those people that encourage me. So good. So good. Mike, I'm trying not to preach, brother. No, I, you said preach you're coming on. in for a landing, baby. I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> okay, so Pastor Chris, I'm inspired by what you just said, by your preaching. It was great. But how do we know if we're in that small minority of people who are really willing to do the work, who are, you know, who who want uh inclusion, who want equity, who want justice? How can we kind of self-diagnose ourselves to know if we're on course or not? Because it's so important as leaders. That's a great question. And I think there are many layers to the answer. I don't think there's just one cookie cutter answer, but I do think there are a couple of characteristics. I think one, there will be humility. Mm -hmm. And humility is important because when you're humble, that's when you're teachable. But if you're not humble, you're not teachable. And so there will be a lot that you will have to learn from people. who you normally don't have speak into your life to teach you. So humility to, to learn, to listen, but also humility to follow. Because mm-hmm. sometimes it takes following people. Like in my world, what I do, the church is a business. Uh, we have staff and we have budgets and uh, facilities and all of that. We may not be taxed, but, but we're a business. And um, I'll encourage people to come under minority leadership. Mm. If this is a core value, something you want to see occur, the best way to learn is to be invited to the barbecue. You know, come on to the barbecue, come to the church, place yourself under leadership because this is good for your children to see. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the white people that I interact with, nine times out of 10, they don't have anywhere in their life where they submit to minority leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they make choices of things that they want, they don't always choose to go to minorities to have those needs met. So their worlds are, are by and large white by choice and by the way things are set up. So again, we come back to the word intentional. And it's great to come under a black mentor, yep. not just a tutor, somebody I can call, hey, can you give me an answer to something? But somebody that you put your life and say, you know what, I'm going to come under you. Would you teach me? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and for me as a pastor, I love when that happens, especially when I have interracial couples and, and they don't feel love from this group or that group that they can come into our church because they know they're going to be loved. And and for our white members, they hear me say things and teach things that they would normally not hear in other spaces and places. And it's tough at first, which is, here's another quality, don't quit when it gets tough because you're going to hear things you normally don't hear. Don't mistake passion for anger. And, and even if there is anger, recognize it's okay to have righteous indignation because some of us are upset about injustice and things that are going on. But you're going to hear things from a biblical perspective that you may have never heard nor considered before. And then when you look up, man, these people are, are educating me because I have them in my church. They're telling me history. They're telling me things. I have a member of my church, and I don't want to chase this too far, but um, he wanted to do something about the Confederate flag symbol that's on the seal in our county. Mm-hmm. And so this is a white brother who's adopted African children, and I'm his pastor. 
And he told me about what was on the seal. I wasn't paying attention to the seal. And once he told me, I said, I'll come behind you in this fight. So he lines up under me. I line up under him. We're lined up under God. And I'm here to say that uh, I was added to the nine member task force to get rid of the Confederate flag on the seal. Mm. And so, so we did that together. So great. But that wouldn't have happened if he wasn't placed under. So the humility, the intentionality, and submitting, those things are important. Well, listen, I, I know that this, this is just a taste of what people can expect in interacting with you. And not everybody's going to have the privilege. They don't live in Nashville. They go to another church. They're going to have the privilege of interacting with you on an ongoing basis. But you have a brand new course that is a way for people to kind of get the download. So could you tell us a little bit about it, what it is, yes. why you created it, yes. and who's it for? 2020 was tough with the, the murder of Amon Arbery, the murder of Breonna Taylor. And then we came upon George Floyd, which we all got to see as he uh, had the officer's knee on his neck for almost nine minutes. And, uh, and, it, and it touched America. I feel the way America was touched in 1963 when white Americans witnessed uh, Bull Connor sick the dogs on the children and on the elderly in Birmingham. Like some, It struck a chord to say, mm -hmm. we have to be better than this. We have to do better than this. And I feel that that's what happened when people got to witness George and, and hearing him cry for his mother as life was coming out of his body. And so um, I saw a breaking point in many of my white friends um, that I had not seen before. And they came to me asking, what can we do? What can we do now? Like, we don't agree with this. We, we, we're listening. Police brutality is real. Um, what can we do now? And so um, I had, he, he passed on Monday. I had Bible study on Wednesday and I had to feed my flock and encourage them. And I happened to be in John chapter 11 that night. And, uh, and in John chapter 11 is when Lazarus dies. And so the Lord gave me a word on how to encourage a community when someone dies. And so um, out of that came a curriculum entitled uh, Loosing Lazarus, Seven Ways to Deconstruct Personal and Structural Racism from mm -hmm. John chapter 11. Because sometimes we just want to talk about personal racism. Mm -hmm. or I'm not a racist because I don't, I'm not a part of Ku Klux Klan and I don't use the N-word. And, and, and so we talk about that. But also we deal with institutional racism, uh, racism that is in structures that hinder certain people and hold back progress. And so um, we get into it from John 11 because Jesus shows us from the text, uh, I say seven things. First thing is Jesus went. When Lazarus died, he went there. He went into the community. Secondly, he wept when he got there. He wept, which meant that it burdened him. It touched him. And I like to tell people, he wept even though he knew a brighter day was coming. He knew a resurrection was coming. We know we're going to heaven, but that doesn't mean we, we should be devoid of feeling right now. We don't want to be so spiritual we're not earthly present. So he wept in that moment because he saw what death had done to that family and that community. But then thirdly, he led. He began to lead his disciples into that place, a place that they didn't want to go, but he led them there. And so we have responsibility to lead our families, our corporations, our churches into these places. But then fourthly, Jesus taught. He taught Mary and he taught Martha about the resurrection. They were thinking about resurrection in the future. And he was like, honey, I'm, I'm talking about resurrection now. 
And so all of us need to have some things where we have to be retaught on some things. But then uh, the fifth thing, thing Jesus did, he prayed. He prayed. And we, we must pray in this hour. But then uh, he also spoke. And when he said, Lazarus, come forth, he used his authority. Because when we use our voices, we're using our power. He just wasn't silent because his silence could have been interpreted as complicity or agreement, but he spoke. And so we need to use our voices, which means using our power to say that this is wrong and I'm willing to suffer the consequences for standing on the side of truth. But then finally, Jesus empowered Lazarus uh, because there are Lazaruses in our community, or as I'll say, Lazaruses who need to be empowered. Uh, and Jesus empowered Lazarus by telling his team to take the bandages off of him. Um, because it's one thing to come out the grave alive, but it's something different when you have the bandages of restrictions taken off of you. So we just can't be concerned about people's souls. Yeah, they're going to heaven. Give them the gospel. The gospel also involves uh, binding up the brokenhearted and even loosening the chains of those who are imprisoned. So Lazarus needed help to be uh, a full citizen, to move on with his life. And so how can you empower Lazarus in your community that, that many times they're dying at the hands of the police? They're, they're dying. They're being shot. They're unarmed. They're dying at the hands of other black men. What, what can we do? And so, uh, man, this thing is on fire. I tell you what. So it has short videos where I teach on the passage and then it has questions and group discussions and group exercises um, so that you can be someone who has been set free. Uh, because when Jesus set Lazarus free, the, the apostles, the disciples had a lesson they needed to learn in that moment, too. It just wasn't about Lazarus. They had some learning to do as well. So I hope uh, your audience will, will go to loosinglazarus.com and check it out. Right, man, it'll bless you. It'll bless you. <laughs> Guys, you've got to do it. Check it out, loosinglazarus.com. Pastor, we're, first of all, so proud to know you mm -hmm. and so honored that we have you in our community and that you were willing to come on and talk to us about these matters because we're, you know, we're trying to do the best with what we've got, and this is a gift to us and to our community, so thank you. And Michael, I want to commend you for being an ally, for being a true brother. There are times you speak up thank and you, you say things uh, to challenge leadership. And leaders like you and I, we speak truth to power on both sides of the political divide. Um, we love people well, and we love them enough to say things that are necessary, even if it may be misinterpreted as being painful for them. But um, I see the things you do in the community, brother, the things you say on social media. And man, thank you. Thank you, brother. You encourage my wow. heart. I've seen you at various prayer vigils and demonstrations in the community. And uh it just blesses my heart. So, man, I don't know if this will get edited out. I hope it doesn't. But I want your listeners to know that you walk the talk. Praise God. Oh, see, man, you're about to get me started, brother. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, thank you. And thank Megan, you, you too, sis. I'm sorry. Uh, you too. Um, the, 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 the things you and your husband have done, things I know about, the commitments you've made in the community as well to let your light shine. Oh, thank you. Um, so praise God. Amen. Amen. I'm energized Amen. by this conversation. So <laughs> often too. Um, I'm drained because I'm talking to people who say, talk to me, but they really don't want to learn. Mm -hmm. mm. They're checking the box. 
Um, but I'm talking to people who are in it, who are doing it. And man, I'm encouraged by you guys. Keep, keep well, up thank the good you. work. Thank you. Likewise. We feel like we have so far to go, but with friends like you, we're going to make it. Amen. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Win. And until next time, Lead to Win. This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by the Succeed and Scale newsletter, a weekly newsletter for business owners that delivers quick tips and insights to help grow your business. Join for free at leadto.win slash succeed.